0: Did you squeeze, uh, did you have, just if I may inquire, now you are my spice, did you have a shot uh, did you, what happened yesterday at, but you did, you, did you have an interesting debate, did you squeeze his organs of, of fertility a little bit or what? He answered of my questions.
1: We don't talk in his class. Sorry? We don't, we don't talk in his class. Yeah, he doesn't let us talk in his Ah, I know, ah, that's <laughs> the question <that's laughs>
0: that
1: I'm <laughs> He wanted only written. We submit yeah. written questions he answered.
0: But then he, the last day he will. Because he told me that he did one session, but it, it took uh, all the time only to answer, I don't know, 8, 9 of 27 or yes, what? Seven, yeah. Six or seven yesterday. Yesterday he answered six or But five. there's like 30 now. Yeah. Sorry? There's like 30 questions now. Right. It bad for you, I think.
1: He did mention your question he told us to point out, which was the event, the. The, does it have to be something that afterwards you retroactively
0: verify? But he said, no, it is the process of the event. Yeah, but, but again, but that's the point. What does he mean by process of the event? Because he explicitly says, he emphasizes all the time that an event is something momentarily evanescent. And that then the point is fidelity traces and so on. You know what I mean? Like, of course, there is a process, but my point is precisely how. Thus this sounds for me too Hegelian to be his position. The idea that, put it speculatively, the event is nothing but its own process. No, no, he has a gap there. He always emphasizes that event is like a momentary flash, and then you have the problem of fidelity. I don't think he would have accepted. Uh, he says, no, 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 again, let me be very clear. And here on his side, I share the same problems That in a properly Hegelian way. Uh, I think that precisely these oscillations are very productive. I think a theory gets interesting precisely when you, s- you are forced to be inconsistent and you know. You look, I mean, theories which just function smoothly are, are totally are simply not interesting. The same is when we were talking about it, for example, in Cognitivism. I like intelligent Cognitivists who admit, uh, who admit, you know, there is a deadlock, a problem here, something happens, and then, this is on what I focus in the middle chapter of that, uh, part of that obscenity parallax view, on how all of them have to admit that in order for all this brain-neuronal retroaction to get to consciousness, a kind of a magic short circuit should happen, when it appears as if the result effect causes its own cause. And it's interesting how totally different authors, they all have recourse to the same metaphor. I think that's where Freud or Hegel should uh, enter. And again, I like there are intelligent, uh, there are intelligent uh, cognitivists who admit this deadlock because I, you maybe you know the debate between so-called reductionists and the great idealist guy is David Chalmers. The great no, who simply thinks that that uh, he has a point, but I don't take his point. He, his position is to put it very simply that there is that there is a way, of course, all conscious activities, even the most complex ones, of course you can somehow reduce them to uh, uh, neuronal processes and so on, but his point is very nice. He says the problem is not complexity. He rejects, and I totally agree with him here, the idea that we can have a stupid automatic mechanism, as long as the tasks are relatively simple. That you need consciousness with a certain amount of complexity. I don't think this. I think first, if anything, uh, consciousness, as every neurobiologist will tell you, consciousness is an operator of simplification. Consciousness simplifies. And I think if there is a... My dogma is twin here, and. I don't know if they were just flattering me, but when I had a debate, I mean private debate, not be public, but some neurologists, they, I will be very modest, I don't want to boast too much, they pretend that, I don't know what they were talking after I left, maybe, who that jerk, good, <laughs> that we got rid of him, but at least face to face they pretend that they were interested, that there is something. In it, namely, in what? I, I said that my two basic dogmas are A, that it's not complexity, it's quite the opposite, the simplification. You know, this is what Badiou meant, probably he explained it also to you uh, during his classes, this crucial point, what he calls of le point, the point. You know, you have a complex situation, then at a certain point you should say a decision, yes or no, this brutal reduction. And also, for example, when you have a complex situation. The true work of intelligence is not this. Uh, here, me and Badiou, that's our private joke, like to make fun of, unfair a little bit, of Derrida. He says that the, Derrida's basic dogma is always, oh, but the situation is a little bit more complex, you know, like, it's not like this, it's more, no, of course it's complex, but this is common sense stupidity, how should I put it, no? The, the, the act of consciousness is precisely when you have a complex, phenomenon, and of course in real life everything is complex, to isolate one feature, to say, but it's really about this. So, that again, consciousness is an operator of simplification. All that complexity, your unconscious, not even in the Freudian sense, in the simple sense of, you know, what goes... Sorry?
2: Non-conscious.
0: Non-conscious, yes, can do. And second thing, and that's what interests some, deep interest some brain scientists I spoke with. Is, my idea is that, uh, I base it on a very simple analogy, that consciousness is at its zero level, it must have emerged as a consciousness of a failure. In, the, you know, in a simple sense, you are, for example, writing. You write it automatically. It's totally ingrained into your neuronal reflexes. You don't think about it. When do you become aware of it as such? When something doesn't function. At that point, oh my God, you know, you notice things when they don't function. And my idea was simply to generalize this, radically. What if consciousness as such is originally linked to some ultimate failure? Maybe the would have said death or some failure, non-functioning and so on. So that again, I want to this because you know why this is I think the only way to avoid one of the good argument of uh, those who of Chalmers and those guys who have a very good argument against this people who try to prove that consciousness can be reduced to neural processes what they prove is let's say they take a very complex activity and then they prove it, that you can account for this activity at the purely material level of neuronal interaction, whatever. That you can reduce it. But then a question remains, if you can reduce it, why then consciousness at all, you know what I mean? The better you explain complex activities through neuronal mechanism, the more the enigma remains, why do you need to be aware of it? Why, I mean, why doesn't it simply function as a kind of a complex computer? What is the function of awareness? And I don't think that uh, they usually then, even with Dennett, whom I otherwise appreciate, I don't agree here, he tends to play the card of complexity. Like when things get complex at a certain level, you simply need some kind of a central agency who introduces order, blah, blah, blah. I don't, I don't think that... I don't think that works. Here, again, I have a limited sympathy with, how is the guy called, with uh, Chalmers who says that, you know, his big argument that the problem is not complexity, the problem is this, how do they call it, the heart problem, raw fact of awareness. Why awareness? In what sense does it help our survival adaptation to be aware of something? Why cannot our, they, okay, it's easy to say. For, let me take an example. You can say, my God, I walk around, I become aware of an, uh, oh my God, I will be evil towards you. It's my nature. Sorry, don't take it personally. I like that Scorpio, you know, who bites the frog in the middle of the stream, yeah. even if he will die for it. Let's say I walk on suspect. I see one of you. My reaction is, let's take a tour so that you don't ask me some stupid questions. Sorry, Sorry it's my nature. What I want to say is that, uh, Now we will say awareness functions as a survival mechanism and so on, no? Uh, How it helps me survive. But then I can say, but still, it's not clear why should I be aware of it? Why can't we do it as a simple blind mechanism which perceives the danger and gives the signal... you know what I mean? The raw fact of awareness is an enigma. And I don't agree again with Chalmers conclusion where immediately, where, as you probably know, his idea is simply that to the far. I think this is the weak strong atomic force, gravity, whatever, magnetic force, that the only solution is to a kind of a... It's ironic how as a big idealist he, he ends up in a way in a strange mixture of idealism with the most vulgar materialism. He says that the only way is to grasp awareness as simply another fundamental natural force. It's literally, you know, quintessence. You know what quintessence means? The fifth essence. So that on the top of, you know, the four ones, the weak strong atomic force and what? Magnetic and uh, what's the other sheet? Gravity or what, no? That to this four we should simply add another fundamental force. But I think this is precisely the false issue. He he simply, I mean... You mean the standard, the standard theory in physics? Yeah. The forces? Four, there are four. Yeah. And now we all know the story, I mean, superficially. The big problem is how to unite them and all that and so on. And few interesting things happen. Uh, uh, you know this oscillation about string theory. First it was winning, then it was losing. Then some ten years ago it was winning, but... Now, this is the stock market tendency in quantum physics. Now it's losing again. And it's very interesting what's the latest tendency, I was told. You know, there is a wonderful term called, uh, who shall I call it, Ptolemaization. You know Ptolemaeus. His was geocentric system. And then there were new and new data which didn't fit it. So, he, to maintain his model, she had to introduce more and more complex supplementary hypotheses. So the idea is that, yes, we have a problem, but that string theory is not too radical, but not radical enough. It's still a Ptolemaization. it's not yet Copernicus. Ptolemization, which is why they need all this shit, you know, ten dimensions, and the, the tragedy is that it's not only that we cannot measure them, they even didn't devise a possible experiment of how to measure and so on. So, I like this speculation. The idea is that we will have to wait for a much more radical, uh, much more radical revolution, and the hypothesis is that uh, one or two, either time or space will have to go, probably time. That is to say that one of these very elementary constituents of reality will have to be erased. Now, finally...
2: To, to get back to your fundamental theory about a failure that accounts for at least the question of why consciousness, yes. this reminds me of Julian James. you know? Who is this? Julian James, the origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. Ah, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, The idea was that Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know yeah. like the research on mirror neurons? Yeah, yeah. This is a kind of fundamental breakdown. And because the brain needs to talk to itself, yeah. neurophysiologically even, this this is what creates consciousness. It's kind of like a materialism, but not exactly. Do you know
0: yeah. No, no, no. I only know, is is uh, he, I know this idea of, but is he the guy who claimed that, for example, uh, prior to ancient Greece, people simply were still yes. become erotic, in the sense that they, 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 for them, simply, for example, what they experienced as sacred and so on, consciousness, it was simply another power uh, an Yeah.
2: so culture becomes a stitching together
0: of yes. these two consciousnesses. Not spontaneous, you know what's only my problem here? I am afraid of a temptation here. Temptation in the sense that, you know, these theories are so attractive that we, Bluffing philosophers are easily seduced and, oh my God, then you link this to Hegel, oh, I am... I don't know if you have this expression. If you are too pretentious, we in Slovene, we have this, back to obscenity, we have this expression, you think you are coding God by his balls, how's <laughs> So I'm just, I like the theory. I'm just simply skeptical in the sense of how tested it is scientifically. I know that wonderful things, Catherine Malabou, that Hegelian brain scientist, convinced me that wonderful things are going on now in brain sciences, on the top quality, uh, especially about this, we all know, this so-called plasticity of mind, no? Neuroplasticity. Yeah, not only this vulgar plasticity in the sense of trans-functioning and so on, but all the stuff which makes it very easy and nice for a Hegelian like her to... So, if you want a good book on Hegel, again, look at... It's published by Princeton University Press. Okay, the title is The Future of Hegel. What's the name Malabou, M-A-L-A-B-O-U. Catherine Malabou. Uh, it's translated in English. What's also very good is that it has a long introduction, which was originally in French, a review of the book. A long introduction by Derrida, which is a wonderful text, you can see that You cannot oppose in this simplistic way Derrida versus Hegel. Hegel, total metaphysics, everything is swallowed by the the idea Derrida knows something remains and so on. Derrida is almost, she almost reconverted Derrida to Hegel because Derrida was, if you read him closely, was all the time much more ambiguous towards Hegel. For example, a standard, deconstructionist would tell you the basic mechanism Hegelian of is Aufhebung, sublation. You took something and you elevated, internalized internalize it through idealization. But then it appears that the basic motive of deconstruction is but this sublation, the reduction of the otherness through mediation, internalization, never fully functions, there is always a remainder, and so on. So it appears as if the final, sorry, the ultimate push topic of the Rida is precisely anti sublation, anti-Hegel. But no, already somewhere in his early works, I don't know where, I forgot, the Rida says that sublation, what Hegel calls Aufhebung, is so close to difference that the line is almost imperceptible sometimes. So again, Derrida always emphasised that he even says sometimes that maybe Hegel is not the ultimate idealist, but on the contrary, the point where metaphysics comes closest to, closest to, to, to deconstruction. No? No, no, Okay, but listen, we get lost here. Let me do some work. Hegel today, and maybe a little bit tomorrow, and some ethics. Okay. So, uh, I want to begin with again the basic difference between this kind of organic evolution and what Hegel means by a dialectical process. Organic evolution is, to put it very simply, a self deployment of a global universal principle at all levels, at the individual level, you have an organism. Of course, everything changes, your stuff changes, you are in contact, but through all these gradual changes, the organism survives. This, you know, like you have a certain, we cannot say universality, but encompassing entity, the one, how? The organic process is how the one survives through the continuous generation, uh, corruption and so on. Things change all the time so that they remain the same, Pashla put it. No? And even if we move from individual level to the higher level of a species, you can say it's the same. It's that individuals die, are born, struggle, but through, precisely through this very constant dynamic process, the species remains the same sustains itself. And this is what people usually understand by dialectics. How? You don't have, on the one hand, the stability of some universal principle, and then the irrelevant empirical movement, but that an idea is alive precisely when it maintains itself through its dynamic. But for Hegel this precisely is the limit of nature. In this, okay, now you will say, but also in nature a species can vanish. Yes, but then it's simple external negation, Hegel would have said. It's not an negation. Like, I reproduce myself, then a stronger animal comes, eats me up, or an asteroid hits me, I die. Okay, but this is, Hegel would have put it, totally external contingency. It can happen, of course, but it's uh, irrelevant. Uh, The principle, again, of life is that the universality or the one remains by itself through the other. You interact with the other and it is this very interaction which sustains you as the one. And of course then, this sounds very dialectical, like, oh my God, you see how it's the very change which allows me to remain the same The moment I no longer change, I die, I'm not even the same, and so on and so on. But this is not what Hegel is about. Why not? For Hegel, there is something quite different which goes on in what he calls spirit, human history. Uh, It is, imagine it like this. If, oh my God, what is this? In one... No, no. In one. <laughs> Why not? I mean, doing something dirty, like Wolfgang, fuck off, and so on. You <laughs> will not be able to... <laughs> uh, I like Wolfgang. But he pretends to be liberal. You know, he always accuses me, you are a proper Stalinist. But then, did you notice how, from time to time, you know, is from East Germany, no? He denies it now, but the Stalinist... Uh, 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 how you call it, uh, 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 discipline, blah, blah. How then all of a sudden when you talk, all of a sudden you get a trace of this harshness. Like yesterday, did you notice how when we were talking about Adorno Habermas and he said, yes, Habermas and Zaheta. This is very hard to say, this is this brutal, a traitor, you know, like all this gentle Wolfgang, you know, all oh, uh, oh this Lassing, the traitor, and so on. I love <laughs> it. Well, I told Wolfgang, he needs more of that. <laughs> okay. Uh, so again, here we have the one or the same. Life is this, how? And here we have continuous changes. Life is this, how the one maintains himself through the very process of changes. Again, as I told you at individual level, you you have to change to interact precisely to remain the same. Uh, and again, people usually think this is dialectics, you see how sameness and unity are connected, the only way to remain the same is to change, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we Hegel something different happens. Let's say we start with one. We have a process. But then, as I developed yesterday, you remember when I said how an idea in its realization undermines itself. We have one, an idea. I want to be this. Then I realize myself, in particular life, and the idea itself dissolves, and another element as it were, takes over. The change is at this level for Hegel. The change, the universal itself. It's not just, it's not just the medium which remains the same. The changes are at this level, so that uh, we people usually say, but it all remains with Hegel within the same totality. The subject externalizes itself, then it swallows back the otherness, and so on. Yes. the idea comes back to itself, but to put it in vulgar terms, it's no longer the same idea. The idea, this disappears, and through the process, another idea comes up which idea which was previously, just a moment here. What do I mean by this? For example, take, take, uh, Marx puts this in wonderfully simple terms. Take the relationship of money and capital. First, Money is the encompassing... No, even at the zero level, what runs the process are simply commodities. Commodity is the master. You produce something that you want to exchange. And money is just a subordinate moment. <coughs> no? In the sense of, I don't know, I produce something, you produce something. We we exchange it, but then it gets too complex. What if you have something that I want and... We need a mediator, money, blah, blah. So it's money. Here at the elementary level, money still appears to be a subordinate moment. Then a medium of exchange. Then something happens with capital. It is that money, which was previously a subordinate moment, becomes the subject of the process. It's no longer commodity, money, commodity. It's no longer that, you know, this, again, as Marx put it, in a simple pre-capitalist exchange, the movement is commodity, money, commodity. I sell something in order to buy another thing. With capital, (coughs) money, which was just the subordinating mediator, becomes the subject. So that it is what encompasses the process the true subject of the process becomes what was previously just a subordinate moment was money itself. The same goes for Marx for production. Marx put this in wonderful terms when he says that from the individual standpoint of the producer, you produce to satisfy your needs. But from the global standpoint, needs are generated in order to keep the production running. That the true goal of the historical process is not to satisfy your need, but is the development of production itself, and so on, and so on. So, uh,
1: is that Say's Law? Sorry? Say's Law. Is that? Economic, it's called Say's Law in economics. I oh, don't know. How do you call it? It's, here I'm an idiot. <laughs> S-A-Y-S. Well, okay, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. But what does it mean? No? That, yeah, what look, does it say, say this the, law? the need generates the production. Or that the production generates the need,
0: yes, Say's Law. You produce the goods, a yes. need will arise. Yeah, although, yeah, I didn't even know that this call says law, because, I mean, it's already, how shall I put it, uh, the, uh, I mean, Marx said this already in a different way, so on, that the product, uh, even the early Marx, whom I intensely dislike, the humanist Marx, and so on. It kind
1: of reverses the usual capitalist formula of find that meat, fill that need. Uh,
0: Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, you yeah, just yeah. the goods, who cares, and then eventually the need
2: will just arrive Yeah, 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 you can say that. But Um, what I, okay, but let's remind, uh, sorry. Oh yeah, it sounds sounds like Lewis Mumford's ideas on on technological determinism, that the way of doing something becomes the reason for doing something.
0: Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, okay, but let's not lose a threat now. I agree, but these are all examples, you see how, and this is what Hegel is, how the process is a process of something, a subject. What happens for Hegel in spiritual, properly, dialectics, is that it's not only that the same reproduces itself through changes, is that the very encompassing unity, as it were, of a process changes. What, you know, something which was previously a subordinated moment becomes the totalizing moment. So what happens in history, it's not that a totality differentiates itself. No, that it Uh, Historical process is rather a constant process of re-totalization. What changes... It's not that you have, let us say, let's take state again. You don't have a concept of state which then realizes itself in different forms. What is for Hegel at stake in historical changes is that the very general notion of what is at, what a state means, changes. The struggle is at the level of universality. Let me give you an example. It's a simple one but I'm not... uh, let's make something clear with all my evil, so that you will not misunderstand me. Uh, 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 When I say, let's take a simple example, the idiot I'm addressing here, it's me, not you. That is to say uh, uh, I'm always obsessed precisely because I'm dealing with Theorists who are usually considered difficult to read even, for some people, bluffing like Lacan Hegel, I'm obsessed with this idea. If you can't put it clearly, don't bluff about it and so on. So, art is, and here this is Hegel's strength often, to provide a simple formula or image and then all of a sudden, oh my God, you say, Now I see it, which is why I will later come to a joke, which I think is the ultimate Hegelian joke, probably you know it. But let's go back to it. Let's take, I think I mentioned this in one of my books, let's take the history of philosophy. You cannot say, uh, this is what I mean and Hegel means with either concrete universality or this change at the very level of, uh, 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 of universality or historicity proper when you read an introduction to philosophy you usually get it's a very simple point again that i will be making you usually get some kind of uh, 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 some kind of general classification it can be of philosophical disciplines or it can be of different orientations you can say what would be the usual thing to say if we that we have today three four main tendencies in philosophy we have different modes of analytic philosophy, more traditional philosophy of science, language analysis, or now more cognitivism, brain sciences. We have phenomenology, we have deconstructionism, we have versions of German idealism. So you simply differentiate, but you know where I challenge you? This would be the Hegelian challenge. If you look at it closely, you will see that no such mapping is neutral. Every such mapping presupposes already a certain philosophical standpoint. There is no meta-language. It is clear that, for, for example, usually such a distinction of philosophy either has an analytical bias where the story is, and they can be very arrogant today, the story is that only with contemporary analytical philosophy post-classical, not that logical empiricism, but this contemporary cognitivism, philosophy simply became another positive knowledge science. So that the gap is continental philosophy is poetry, it can have interesting uh, metaphoric insights, but a Heideggerian would have put a totally different accent, that analytical philosophy is not a proper philosophy at all. It's basically just some kind of positive description that the task of philosophy is to think, to reflect on, I simplify it, what Heidegger calls a rymis event or lichtung uh, in the sense of opening, uh, clearing, the way the meaning of being, being is disclosed to us. This kind of a ultra-transcendental, reflection of what historically for us today means something really exists, being, and so on. So for him that's not... So what I'm telling you is that, is that there is no neutral classification. That, as put it, each philosophical orientation is not only itself, but it's itself and a certain view on the totality. And the point is that you cannot step on your own shoulder and give a neutral classification. Every classification, uh, the totality of philosophy appears to you differently. If you are an analytical philosopher, if you are a deconstructionist, if you are a deconstructionist, the big divide will be between, you know, this constant attempt how to overcome metaphysics. That story is, there is a certain metaphysical closure and then the measure is how much did you break through? To some others here which is why and here but you once wonderfully annoyed uh, Wolfgang where Wolfgang was attacking in one debate years ago at, at this stupid evening talks me and Alain as being too dualistic you know you still still in about metaphysical category uh, uh, this that dualistic but he says no today we live in a different era we are entering different domain, post-metaphysical, blah, blah. And then, of course, but you, in a very nasty way, said, so your dualism is dualism and non-dualism. It's a self-referential dualism, which is even a, strong, uh, even a stronger one. No? Uh, so, also, I remember, uh, this was a nice story. Oh, it was so evil. She was so mad, although I am friendly with her. Uh, Avital Ronell gave a talk. Some maybe some of you were there some four years ago, I think, were on Wagner and Nietzsche. And her point was uh, that uh, the, the greatness of Nietzsche was to find the strength to betray Wagner, his master teacher, And then she went into all this poetry of how the creative moment of thinking is the betrayal of the master. No? And then, uh, with one bitchy remark, but you uh, ruined the show. He just asked her, uh, "Okay, where is your betrayal of Derrida?" And then it was incredible how this simple remark. That was also the other how is he called? Uh, another deconstructionist follower of Derrida. I forgot his name, the German guy who was there. And uh, uh, Avital's answer was to. Immediate resort to what, but you would have called paraconsistent logic. Yes, it's not really always. There are exceptions. <laughs> that, uh, then, then, uh, then some uh, how is it called? Some something. The deconstructionist did a very desperate move. He said, Derrida doesn't need this because he is so creative that he is all the time already betraying himself and so on. No. Uh, it was quite funny to note how they... Uh, uh, okay, that's a nice Hegelian moment, but let me go on. So, philosophy back. You see at uh, the very simple point. The wager of Hegel's notion of historicity or concrete universality. It's not that there is no universality. There is universality. But that the life is in universality itself. We are at the level of... And this is history. History is history of universalities history means precisely there is no meta language in the sense of there is no you cannot step out of you on your shoulder and see globally how things are every all-encompassing view on all history is already part of history for example even in politics you remember if you are not too young that now I beat you but it's unfortunate that You remember that once upon a time in politics there was something called left and right. Maybe you remember those old old times. You know what? Here you have this, what I'm talking about at its purest. Left and right. Yes, but uh, you cannot give, I challenge you to give a neutral description of the social political space where you will say what is left, what is right. If you look closely, you will see that every description of what is left and what is right is already either leftist or rightist description. Because uh, left and right are not just two political positions within a political space. The totality of the space appears to you differently if you are a right-winger or a left-winger. To put it in very simplistic terms, not always, but fundamentally, the basic rightist motive is that of organic stability. First, a true right winger doesn't say I'm a right winger. He likes to di- they like to distinguish the organic center and the extreme. And the extremes. For them it would be this organic stable center and the extreme excesses. For the left winger it's the opposite. It's that the fundamental fact is struggle as such. So you see my point. This is what Hegel means by historicity proper. That, that, uh, again, it's not only that uh, universal idea then articulates itself, that, for example, philosophy subdivides into this, that philosophy, and so on. Each particularity, as it were, has its own universality. The only way to define what is philosophy is to go through all forms of philosophy. Not because of a simple evolutionism that the uh, philosophy develops, but again, because there is no neutral universal notion of philosophy, you know, the movement is at the level of universality itself. That's, that would have been, to put it in, very simple point. And which is why in politics, for Hegel, the historical moment proper occurs in this, in the moments when a certain historical form is threatened, and then Hegel is very clearly here. This is the role of so-called great historical personalities, heroes who are at the same time criminals, criminals in the sense of outside the law. And the way Hegel is usually read is that, yes, you as a hero follow your arrogant instincts, like, of course, Caesar wanted power. But you are following the line of what Hegel calls cunning of reason. You are an unconscious tool of a historical reason. You think you are following your narrow motives, egotism and so on, but in reality you just, uh, you, you are just an instrument of the higher rationality, reasoning, history, and so on and so on. I don't think it, I don't think it works as such. It works like this in Hegel. I think we should here take into account what I already said and rather see uh, the process as much more open. When a certain historical fo- forum is falling apart, there is a moment of genuine contingency, and then the hero does something. And if he is lucky, you have here following what, in his wonderful text, you should read him, he's not an idiot, the guy who died, the British philosopher uh, 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 Bernard Williams. You know what he calls moral luck. This is a deeply Hegelian idea. The idea that that, uh, even in morality, uh, you cannot in advance measure the ethical status of an act by the purity of intention, whatever that... It depends on the very ethical status of an act, depends on how it turns and so on and so on. So again, Hegel's idea is rather that something which is a contingency may, through a repetition, then establish itself as necessity. The example here would have been precisely Caesar. You know, Hegel uses this nice paradox that Caesar is, at the same time, the name of an individual, and then it became a title. That's for Hegel the function of repetition. First you do it, you fail, but you return as universality. In order for a thing to assert itself as necessity, it has to repeat itself. Through Again, first you have a person, Caesar, then It's repeated as a title, and in a wonderfully funny way, Hegel goes through history giving other examples of how Napoleon also had to lose twice, first in 1813, then in 1850, no? So that his uh, loss was a necessity. So now, let's go on. What does Hegel mean by this uh, retrospective character of the meaning of our acts? That's, again, now I will do a little bit of Antigone, because that's Hegel's basic insight, that uh, Hegel is not an intentionalist. His position is extremely interesting here, very modern, if you want. Hegel's point is not you do something that, you know, all this game of intentions, you intend to do something that... For Hegel, the meaning of an act arises only through the act itself. For Hegel, the rule is rather that you intend to do something, and it's only through the meaning, sorry, through the act itself that you discover retroactively what you really meant to do. Meaning is not pre-existing. Hegel is not here in this sense an internalist. Hegel is totally opposed this false hermeneutic idea of uh, what do I know, what did you mean with that, I would have to know your mind to know what did you mean it, no, for Hegel you yourself don't know what you meant you wanted something but it's through the act that that it becomes retroactively clear to you what you meant and again in a radical reading of Hegel I claim this doesn't mean that somebody else does know that you know that you are just a tool. You think you are doing A, but some divine intelligence, reasoning history controls it. No. It's contingency. Reason of history it's 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 history is as Hegel would as good, uh, Gould Stephen J. Gould, uh, Marxist Darwinian would have put it, one big process of acceptation. Hegel, I think, is the arch theories of acceptation. You do something <coughs> Meant for a certain goal, it's accepted. It's but in a in an improvised, open way. I will try to prove this to you now by taking the big example from phenomenology, Antigone. It is so elementary that I didn't want you to uh, to give you the literature. But if you want tomorrow, I can give you some parts of Hegel, which are worth reading i prefer this arrogant way not you read hegel then you interpret me i tell you what to look in hegel then you read hegel <laughs> 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 Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay uh, so for hegel what is crucial as you maybe know is the passage from tragedy to comedy comedy is for hegel the truth of tragedy It doesn't mean the usual thing that tragedy is not serious. The way Hegel is interpreted here is again in a false pseudo-dialectical way. People usually think like this. Once you are caught into the action, you participate, it's tragic, it's the real struggle. But then, from the position of the universal idea, you see how all these struggles are just moments in a global unity, so this is wisdom, how all oh, we fight our struggles, but you know all these ridiculously stupid proverbs, like, aren't we only elements in some higher theater piece written by God, we don't even know what, and so on, and so on. I hate proverbs. I think proverbs are the stupidity of language embodied. What are Proverbs. Whatever you do, you always find a proverb to justify it, I claim. Let's say I'm doing something which is a little bit risky. I succeed. What will be your reaction, if you are stupid? I'm not saying you are. Uh, Probably you will tell something like, I don't know, it means to me we have proverbs, like only those who risk profit or whatever, like proverbs justifying the necessity of taking a risk. Let us say that I fail. Oh, you will have again. I don't know, we in Balkan, it is in Slovenia, we have a nice proverb, this skeptical. It says something like, you cannot urinate against the wind, you know. And incidentally, if you talk about uh, slips of tongue which produce obscene effects, this is my favorite ultimate obscenity. Once I made this point in Paris at a seminar by Jacqueline Miller, and I wanted to make this point again, and I wanted to translate, of course, it was in French, into French, this, you cannot piss, urinate against the wind. The wind. I confused the uh, French words, and I confused, I, instead of on a petit chien, I said on a petit chien. you cannot cheat contre le vent. And uh, Miller was here, he, he just looked coldly at me and said, the wind must be really strong in your country. (laughs) (laughs) I know, these were nice moments of my experience there. Okay, but... OK. Let's uh, let's go on. So... uh, 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 It's not this position of wisdom that Hegel means by the passage from tragedy to comedy. He means something else. Uh, What he wants to illustrate, apropos Antigone, is, again, precisely this retrospectivity of the true meaning of our acts. You do something, retrospectively you discover, but for Hegel, this discovery is constitutive. You get my point. It's not that some higher intelligence knew from the very beginning, no, there is no reasoning history in this sense. Reason is always retroactive. You can tell a story, but only afterwards. Okay. Uh, what's Hegel's point of Antigone? Uh, uh, Antigone for Hegel deploys what happens when a subject acts upon the premises of some, what Hegel calls, ethics of immediate substantial custom. The... Uh, uh, What's the idea is that, you know how Antigone acts confronting crime It's not a reflective acting. It's not the idea. Her point is not to argue in this typical uh, modern way, conflicting ethical claims. He simply does it because her nature to do it. He's referring as a fact to some something, some unwritten laws compel her, to do it what she is doing. And for Hegel, this immediate reliance on this ethical substance. You know, antigone is not thinking strategically, like in certain situations you act like this, like that. It's this kind of ethical, substantial immediacy. Here is this beautiful quote. Zeus did not announce those laws. Laws which justify her resistance to Creon. Zeus did not announce those laws to me and justice, living with the gods below, sent no such laws for men. I did not think anything which you proclaimed strong enough to let a mortal override the gods and their unwritten and unchanging laws. They are not just for today or yesterday, but exist forever, and no one knows where they first appeared. So I did not mean to let a fear of any human will Led to my punishment punishment among the gods. So again, her position here is what Hegel calls immediate ethical substance. You rely on your, let's call it very naively, spontaneous ethical instinct. I cannot do it otherwise, that's the substantial justice which is an organic part of my being. Hegel is very precise here. He doesn't oppose this to freedom. Now, let's do a little bit of analysis. Hegel is not saying that Antigone is, as it were, dominated by some compulsive mechanism. No, no, this is already the modern notion. If you experience something as some kind of a blind mechanism which compels you to act in a certain way, it means you already have a minimum of distance to experience it as something... Externally imposed, which is why Hegel is totally right to say that this idea of Le Homme machine, we humans are just victims dominated by some objective mechanism, this is a typical position of modern freedom. Because, you know, you already, in order to experience something as a compulsion, you already must have a minimal position outside. If you are in the compulsion, it's not a compulsion. Uh, And and now, which is why Antigone is, for Hegel, also the figure of love. What is love? Love is, on the one hand, the ultimate freedom, we all know. You cannot fall in love on on an order. You can't be, although, okay, it's more complex. In politics, everything is possible. We do say, you must love your parents, you must love your country, but that's another point let's not go into What I'm saying is that, let's say if you fall in love, that's the paradox of love. On the one hand, it's free. Free in the sense that you shouldn't be, if you are forced by yourself or by an external authority to love somebody, it's no longer love. So, love is in this sense free. You feel all your being in authentic, passionate love. But at the same time, it's not free in the sense that you have absolutely no no choice. You know what I mean? Like You cannot say, no, I will not point out so that you will not, you must already probably have a long list to report me to some politically correct committee or what, I don't want to act, to, but okay, let's, I will look up, okay. Uh, so that you, will know. Uh, uh, you know, if I say now I want to fall in love, it's a lady there, 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 let's compare. The moment I approach, it's not love. Love is always, the choice of love is always retroactive. In authentic love, you never know when you fall in love. All of a sudden, retroactively, you discover, I am in love. You cannot. The now is never here. And here you have, I'm so sad, we don't have time for it, the most subversive, beautiful speculations of the other great German idealist, uh, Schelling, who goes into this, how uh, the highest freedom is always unconscious. Namely, contrary to the common sense, which tells us free acts must be conscious, for saying the ultimate freedom is unconscious. In the sense of this fundamental decision, which you, with your conscious ego, like fundamental decision, like the choice of a love partner, for example, which is contingent, totally free. Like love is, by the definition, contingent. You never know in whom love can be totally, you never know in whom you end up falling in love. But the point is that it is necessarily experienced as something not even blindly imposed. It's simply your nature. You cannot do it otherwise. And I like this Schelling's nice totalitarian view. His idea is that even if you have no choice you are still fully responsible for it. What you cannot do is to to say, he even takes these theological examples. He says, okay, slightly anti-Semitic, I'm sorry, the example. He says, it was forever decided, determined, in the very fate of Judas, that he will betray Christ. He didn't have a choice. It was his destiny. But nonetheless, he is fully responsible for it. And then he makes a much more appropriate, not such a stupid, anti-Semitic, concrete example, and it's true. When he says that when you encounter a truly evil person, and I did encounter some of them, it's true, you can see that their evil is part of their nature. They simply are like that. But nonetheless, they are responsible. Okay, Schenning's solution of this enigma, which you find already in Kant, is a wonderful one is a, a kind of a transcendental a priori act. It sounds idealist, but it's not. It's very close to what in psychoanalysis we would have called the choice of the fundamental fantasy. That uh, in some kind of atemporal a priori act, we are, as Sartre would have put it, responsible for our project, for what we are. Of course, in our temporal reality, we experience this as our nature, you cannot change it. But fundamentally, at an unconscious level, we are responsible for it. And this is how also Freud says, when, you know, Freud already answers this boring Foucauldian reproach before Foucault's time, of course, that uh, psychoanalysis is comparable to confession, you have to confess your blah-blah. No, Freud says uh, psychoanalysis is much worse In Confession, you are responsible for what you did, for blah, blah. In, uh, for what you know, you should tell everything. In Psychoanalysis, you are responsible even for what you don't know, and what you didn't do, and so on, no? Because, again, it's this, uh, let's call it choice of argumental fund. But, okay, Uh, now let's go further. Here, you can see the difference between what Hegel calls the Substantial Ethics, this naivety of ethical shaktans where you simply act like this because you cannot do it otherwise. And the modern ethics. The modern ethics for Hegel is the paradigm of modern ethics is Immanuel Kant. There Kant brings to extreme this idea of reflexive character of all ethical norms in the sense of For Kant, the laws that you have, moral laws, moral norms, whatever, that you follow are never simply given to you. You are responsible for them. This is what Kant means by radical freedom and so on. That, uh, uh, how shall I put it, Uh, uh, when Kant makes you, what does Kant mean by subjective autonomy, which is exactly the opposite of Antigone? He doesn't want to say, oh, you are free to act autonomously. No. What can't prohibit is, you know, this typical ethical excuse. Let's say I have to hurt you as part of my duty. I have to do something because of my moral duty which will hurt you and you are my friend. And then the usual hypocritical excuse is, uh, I'm sorry, but I know it will hurt you, but I cannot help it. It's not my choice, it's my duty. No, you cannot say this for Kant. For Kant, you are not only responsible to do your duty, you are also responsible to define what your duty is. You should stand behind it. There is, again, this is typical modernity, there is no substantial other which guarantees, as it were, to you that this is your duty. That's modern freedom. It's kind of a more reflexive freedom. It's not only freedom you can follow your duty or not. It's freedom in the sense of responsibility or, so, to put it in another way, people usually use, you uh, usually say there is no excuse for not doing your duty. You have to do it. Kant is adding another twist to it. His point is there is also no excuse for doing your duty. In the sense of, you cannot say, sorry, that's my duty. No, you have to stand fully behind it. This is why, going back to uh, uh, the start, sorry? Can give you a good example? Yeah. Yesterday, the Scottish justice minister. Yeah, oh, yesterday he, also, yeah. And he said, I'm doing my job. I didn't choose this moment. Yeah. I'm doing my yeah, job. Yeah, yeah. And
2: he stood behind it. Didn't blame anybody. I like
0: this that he stood behind. Uh, I don't remember who yeah.
2: or, or whatever. But uh, you know there.
0: what bothered me. Okay, let's not lose time on this. But I can, would like to reply to. Oh, okay, uh, exactly. You know what interests me if that is that I have no sympathy for terrorists, blah blah. But something did intrigue me. If you watch TV, did you notice that Scottish guy? I think the father of one of the victims or the son, who said, if that is true, it really puts everything in the new light that they discovered that there was some break into where the luggage was kept at Heathrow the night before for this flight and that not only they didn't inquire into this but that this entire event was suppressed which is, would, which is with great probability probably where the bomb was I, I mean if this is true then it's truly it's not just Arab terrorists looking for excuses and no, no, so not, on. Not, That's not the
2: real story. The real story is there's a strong suspicion by not the usual suspects yeah. but by mainstream media that something is being suppressed. That yes. he's really not yeah.
0: guilty. Yeah, They're yeah. More likely yeah. yeah, again, I'm not here too paranoia. I don't buy those stories. Although, again, I know there are some shady clips. You know those stories of, uh, how do you call it, of uh, uh, the September 11th was all staged by I don't know enough about it, no, but generally I tend to be more sceptical, you know why? Because my position is that ultimately I don't think it matters. What matters is how it was used ideologically. I don't, I have to put it, uh, uh, I think that paranoiac theories tend to overdo that what they don't get is that the point they are trying to make can be made also without this paranoiac Surplus, as they put it, no? But okay, let's go back to Kant. So, you know this story? Here I respectfully disagree with Hannah Arendt. This story that Kant is the philosopher of unconditional duty, whatever you should do your duty, and that uh, in this sense, Eichmann was genuinely a Kantian. Because you know that Eichmann's defense was a Kantian one he explicitly referred to Kant. He said, I just did what I perceived as my duty, my duty was to follow the orders for my country, and Führer's law command was for me my duty, so I was just a Kantian. I think it's totally wrong. Because what Kant prohibits you is precisely this way of erasing, it's not me, I was just following orders. No, you have to stand behind. You cannot. You cannot turn yourself just into an instrument. That's what Kant's autonomy is. It's a much more radical position, much more radical position than it may appear. And incidentally, don't dismiss Kant as too easy. Kant is an extremely interesting uh, philosopher where things get so complex. There is no Hegel without Kant because my view of history of philosophy is a very simple one, you will laugh. True philosophy is something which started with Kant and ended with Hegel. Before they were doing some uh, confused intuitions, after they tried to overturn, but nobody even understood Hegel, and so on and so on. Everything happened there. So, uh, what is so interesting in Kant, here is the same as with Hegel. Let's do a short, we are back to Hegel, I didn't lose my time, Hegelian critique of Kant. Uh, Kant often makes a philosophical choice. And then, as Badiou would have put it, he behaves paracosistically. No? He wants to withdraw. He's afraid of the consequence. Which is why today we should repeat Kant. And I think what Lacan did is to repeat Kant in this sense. Lacanian ethics of psychoanalysis in a way is very Kantian. What do I mean by this? Let me give you a couple of examples which will interest you. (coughs) Uh, First, uh, minor examples, which are funny but crucial. You know how Kant often says something and then is afraid of the consequences and withdraws. For example, Kant asks the question at some point in his uh, metaphysics of morals, rather of customs, are there situations where you are allowed to kill another human being with impunity? Then he he, uh, enumerates Two such possibilities. One is the relatively obvious one in his life, the duel of honor, apart from war, which is collective killing of I'm... Uh, the, the duel. If you have a duel, I challenge you, you kill me, it's okay. It may be not legal, but it's somehow ethically acceptable for me to kill you, maybe. Then he does an example which is terrifying to kill an illegitimate child and he uses the terrifying uh, parallel with smuggled commodity. He said, in the same way that a state has the right to destroy a smuggled commodity, because it physically exists, but not legally, it's not covered by the law, in the same way an illegitimate child exists just physically, not legally, and parents have the right to kill it, the mother. And then, in a typical Kantian move, in a footnote, he said, "Of course, this doesn't mean we should really do it." Blah blah blah, but ah, ah, ah. it's there. Another Kantian madness, and Hegel was shocked by this. You know, in the same book, uh, uh, *Metaphysics of Morals*, Kant's extremely brutally consequent uh, definition of marriage. You must know it; it's wonderful. That it's the contact between the two adults of a uh, mutual use of sex organs for pleasure. None of this, you know, higher unity, blah, blah. And Kant gives a wonderful answer when... uh, Okay, let's not go into it. What I want to tell you is that he is consequent here. Because uh, it's not just this one point, because if you look at the page later, this is Kant at his comical best. He asks the question, uh, if a husband runs away from a wife, does the wife have the right to call police to bring the husband back. Kant's answer is yes. Why? Because the husband ran away with a piece of property which, according to the marriage contract, was the property of a wife. The penis. So it's it's not some spiritual unit. It's just you know bringing back property and so on and so on. Uh, now let's go to more serious waters. What, what did Hegel answer about the contract? Uh, pretty, pretty boring, that Kant doesn't see the higher spiritual unity and that it's not just sexual pleasure. This is Hegel at his worst, I claim that. He plays this, uh, all the spiritual unity stuff and so on. Okay, but then uh, where things go really great is in what is maybe the best, the most provocative Kant. The late Kant, his, right, his last big book on It's called uh, uh, Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone, where he, as you probably know, proposes this strange category of, and you will see immediately why the oscillation is crucial, what he first calls diabolical evil. What's his problem then? His problem is that you could be... uh, There are elementary forms of evil which are simple egotism. Like, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. You have money there, I push you away, I steal the money. Why? Because I want the money for profitable reasons, or whatever. I, sorry for tasteless examples, I rape you for pleasure, I humiliate you to win, or whatever. It's, you know, it's evil things you do for obvious profitable reasons. And Kant is well aware that these reasons can be, that this that this works even for good and that if you do it for some, what Kant calls pathological reason. Kant doesn't mean it in the sense of clinical pathology, but in the sense of uh, uh, depending on contingent, immediate empirical circumstances, it disqualifies you what you do as a true ethical act. For example, I help you, but I do this, even if I'm not aware of it, in order to impress others. Not that what really pushes me is how nice I will appear in the eyes of others. Or even a step further, even if it's only that it makes me feel well, that I will admire myself, it also disqualifies it. So then, for Kant, uh, a true ethical act must be done, that's his famous definition, purely autonomous only for the sake of duty. You did it because you knew you have to do it, because it's your duty not because of any profit, even if it's a very sublime profit of feeling well. Then Kant encounters a problem, where he asks the question, but is it possible also to imagine a radical, diabolical evil along the same lines? An evil which you do not because of any profit that you will get from it, pleasure, power, humiliating the other, whatever, but just for the sake of it. That you are, as it were, evil out of principle. And here again he oscillates. He starts by affirming it, but then he quickly, not explicitly, but if if you follow closely the text you can see, he gets the terrifying consequence, which is that if you allow for an evil act like this, radical evil, then it is undistinguishable from the good. Because Kant defines good as something that you do just for the sake of principle, not for pathological reasons. Not because it brings you esteem, pleasure, money, but just because you get to do it. Now, if you allow for this kind of radical evil, the and in this sense, here are things get complicated. Uh, this is why Kant then is forced to save his notion of the good, is forced to proclaim that this kind of diabolical, radical evil is not possible, evil done just for the sake of it, but that he then quickly reinterprets diabo- radical evil, not as an act which is done just for the sake of it, but as, you know, which would be maybe, it's more complex, one of the definitions of this kind of diabolical evil. You know, uh, that's why, and here we are in these quarters, Milton, Paradise Lost, you know that famous statement by Devil, evil be thou my good. So you do evil because you treat it as the supreme good, not for any pathological profit and so on. So then Kant reinterprets radical evil as simply a radical tendency in our human nature to do evil. Just that evil is not just kind of a contingent element, some of us have it, some not, it's uh, something that cannot be eradicated an eternal constitutive propensity of our being, which totally (coughs) which of course makes it much more inoffensive. What's Kant's problem? This is why Lacan then, maybe you know the line, proposed that Kant with Satan. What does Kant aim at? Why is this? Because for Lacan when he says Kant, sad is the truth of Kant. Be very careful. Lacan's point is not Kant was secretly a sadist. This is the standard reading. Know that beneath this Kantian duty is this sadistic pleasure. Haha, you have to do your duty, even if it will be a catastrophe. this kind of a superego. You know, like uh, the proverbial school teacher who beats the children, his pupils, and says to himself, oh, it makes me cry, but I have to do it. It's duties for their own good, but really it's for your sadistic. Deep pleasure. This is how Kant's moral rigorism is usually... No, what uh, Lacan claims is that it's not, it's not Kant who is a sadist. It's sad who is a Kantian. Yeah. That is to say, Marquis de Sade's injunction of this unconditional pleasure is beyond the pleasure principle. It's somehow, it's in a way, a choice of evil for the sake of it. And I, as I repeated in two of my books, you know which is the best example of this? I cannot restrain from repeating it. Do you know Don Giovanni? Not earlier version, there is more complex, but Mozart's opera. You know what happens at the end when the stone guest arrives and confronts Don Giovanni? Read it carefully, the libretto. The stone guest is not there to punish Don Giovanni. He comes there to help him. He basically tells Don Giovanni, your life is at an end. You will now die now. I give you a final chance. If before dying you repent your sins, then uh, you still can be saved. If not, you go to hell, you will burn forever. What Don Giovanni does is he said, no, 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 seven times. I don't repent. But look, this is pure ethical air. Because Giovanni knows he has nothing to gain by remaining faithful to his sinful life. He is at the end. The only, he gains nothing. If he repents, he can be saved. If he persists in his sins, he will burn forever. And nonetheless, he insists. It's evil as, precisely, evil be down my good. It's even if you pay the highest price, I insist, in my evil. And this brings us to this typical romantic figure, you know, the Byroness, demoniac hero. This, this is where things get interesting with Kant. You can also see where Saab was a Kantian at another level. If you read Marquis de Shad, there is first an obvious ways to see, uh, a, a way to see where Saab is a uh, uh, Kantian. I mean, like, one of the most boring books that I've read, which is why I didn't read to the end, is that 120 Days of Sodom, no? You know how it gets more and more purely formalized? Up to number 100, there are at least some descriptions of the acts, But then, around two, 300 it gets more and more a purely mathematical permutation, like Take a cow, a dog, two young ladies and two boys and they screw in this way. Then the next one, take one cow, three boys. It becomes, first of it, it's purely intellectual, cold. It's the coldest thing you can imagine. There is no earthly passion in it. And to go on, if you read S.A.D. carefully, you can see what's his problem. He starts as a primitive naturalist. He claims, that, uh, we have a nature which not only wants to create but also wants to destroy. The natural way is this circle of life, things have to fall apart so that new things are born and so on. So, you have this then anti-oppressive message. Religion is unnatural, is suppressing our true nature. So, let's throw off religious chains, let's fully live our nature. But then, in a much more interesting way, Sade gets the point that in this way, we just exchange one chain, one slavery for another. We are no longer longer slaves of God, but we still remain slaves of nature. And here then comes to Sade the idea of what he calls absolute crime. Uh, 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 An act of violence, which is so radical that it doesn't only... doesn't only fit the flow of nature, but that it interrupts the very flow of nature. Like, it cuts this. Which is why Saab was so interesting in this radical death, where you don't just kill someone so that then, out of this, another person is born, whatever, but you, as it were, stop the very cycle of reproduction and so on. And what's my point here? what Kant calls an autonomous act is precisely the same thing. It's, as Kant put it, something which cannot be accounted for in the terms of the chain of natural causalities. It's an act ex, ex, ex nihilo, out of nowhere. So, things are much more comp- much more complex here. But nonetheless, let's go a little bit further before the breaking allow me, with Hegel. So, again, uh, back to Antigone. She is the opposite of this modern reflexive ethics, where you don't just do your duty, the most more painful part is to decide what your duty is. You know, this is a typically modern Freudian, but already in Hegel you find this suspicion, that uh, this is unimaginable for Antigone, for this naive world of antiquity. The idea that you cannot trust your substantial ethical instincts. They can cheat. You can experience something as your duty, but what if you are doing it for some secretly pathological reasons, to profit in a secret way? This universalized suspicion is typically modern attitude Okay, let's go on with Antigonus. So this is her immediate ethical nature, but Hegel tries to prove that there is already a crack in this edifice that Antigone's universe uh, collapses how? his point is that this is her starting point of Antigone that these unwritten eternal laws which are simply here are telling her that a dead person should be properly buried through the ritual and so on and that's her duty that's what she is she cannot help it but Once she does the forbidden act, performing the funeral rite for, how do you pronounce it? I pronounce it usually the Greek way, polyneikos. How do you pronounce it? Polynesis, whatever. Okay, I will speak to the Greek way. And confronts the consequences, the threat that she will die while still alive, you know, that she will be excommunicated, buried alive. Only then she becomes aware of the actual rule that guided her. Through the act, She discovers beneath this universality, one has to respect unwritten laws, the particular rule. That's another quote which comes later from Antigone. What law do I appeal to claiming this? And then, this is the famous passage. If my husband died, there would be another one. And if I were to lose a child of mine, I would have another with some other man. But since my father and my mother too are hidden away in father's house, I never have another living brother, that was the law I used to honor and so on. So here, after that she said something very different it's not just generally unwritten laws, say which she said only for the brother and it's interesting how traumatic this point is uh, do you know that there is, if you know the history of interpretations of Antigone do you know that uh, for a long time one of the uh, either One of the predominant ways to get rid of it, for example, Goethe claimed this must have been a later insertion. It cannot be. It's so vulgar, the idea, only for my brother. And uh, uh, now comes a friendly step at my friend enemy. Even Judith Butler, in her book on Antigone, goes into this, like it's not only brother, brother, brother. Everyone is embarrassed by this motive. But for Hegel, that's the whole point. Through the act, she thinks before acting that I'm doing this out of a general principle. When confronted with the true consequences of the act, she becomes aware that no, she wouldn't have done it if another of her relatives or friends would have been left unburied, that it's only for her brother. Why? Now we come to the crucial point, which will bring us to Antigone's uh, limitation. Of course, what you will say is, ho ho, it's incest. Of course, incestuous love. And then you have one maybe good argument to claim it. It's that, okay, maybe it wouldn't have been incest in another family. But fuck it, we are talking about Oedipus family, no? If it's not incest here, then where it is? But I claim, no, I claim that And this is the genius of Jacques Lacan's interpretation of Antigone in his seminar of ethics. how he never mentions incest. I think we should apply here that wonderful rule by Levi-Strauss, who claimed, maybe it's false, I don't know, that he discovered Claude Levi-Strauss, the anthropologist, a tribe which claimed that all dreams have sexual meaning, all except sexual dreams. So I claim that precisely because this is Oedipus' family where. Incest was, like, practical affair of the day. You cannot uh, persist this into it. Uh, why, then, why the brother? Again, And th- the key point is, Antigone was able to formulate this insight only after she accomplished her act. Only once she did it did she become aware of what she did, it, of what really, uh, of what really uh, motivated her. So, again, through the act which we pass from abstract universality respect the dead; they all deserve funeral rights to this concrete privilege example. Uh, why? Okay, Hegel gives them a wonderful reason why because the link to the brother is linked to pure otherness. What kind of other is brother? Here we encounter the uh, Hegel's reading that here we counter the limitation of Antigone. Brother is, for Antigone an other, deprived of all personal features. Which is why Antigone's did, you know, when she says, it doesn't matter what my brother did. It may all be true what Creon claims. He was a traitor, wanted to destroy our city and so on. But, but he is my brother. So Hegel's point is that that's the limit of this uh, uh, naive ethics, that uh, uh, the respect you pay to another no longer concerns the living but the dead. To love somebody, someone for what he is, not for what he did, is ultimately to love him as a corpse. That is to say, that's for him the inherent limitation, again, or of, Antig- of this naive love, that it works only if the other whom you unconditionally love is, is uh, reduced to uh, a dead one. Uh, uh, okay, here Antigone catastrophically, again, confronts the limitation and so on and so on. But how that do we pass from this to tragedy? Ah, this is the beauty of Hegel. Hegel's point, and I think he was absolutely right, is that it's not that after the Greek tragedies, there comes comedy. Either, already in the Greek time, you know how it was usually done, four games, I think, per day. This, like, not double bill as in Hollywood when I was young, but quadruple B, that it was, you know, three tragedies and a comedy. Not only in this way, and also not only historically, in the sense that, you know, that later in Roman times we have comedies. For Hegel, there is a precise point, precisely as a reaction to realizing the deadlock of her love, this mortified dimension, that a comical element enters occurs in Antigone herself. Let me be precise here. How? Hegel noticed something weird happening to Antigone after she pathetically assumes her fate. You know, after she is condemned and she knows she will die, she totally changes. If you look the play attentively you will even notice that only at that time she becomes beautiful black. Before she is like a nasty bitch. Remember her conversations with Ismene, her sister, how brutal she is towards her and so on. I mean, if there is a so-called warm human being in Antigone, it's Ismene. Antigone is a bitch. I mean, fuck you, I wouldn't like to have Antigone for my sister if you ask me, no? Because she would celebrate me after I'm dead. (laughs) Uh, What she does to cope with her predicament is the schedule's point. She starts to Act. She loses this natural immediacy. I organically do my duty. She displays already a level of self-awareness and reflectivity about her role. Let me give you one of the quotes. Well, she says, I've heard about a guest of ours, daughter of Tantalus from Phrygia. She went to an excruciating death in Sipilus, right on the mountain peak. The stone there, just like clinging ivy, wore her down, and now so people say, the snow and rain never leave her there as she laments. Below her weeping eyes, her neck is wet with tears. God brings me to a final rest which most resembles hers. Why is this comedy for Hegel? She's already composing points on herself. You know what she's doing here? It's no longer immediate suffering. It's as if I'm dying and I say, imagine, I'm like a hero and so on. You know what I mean? She's immediately, as it were, mythifying herself. She's using metaphors to designate herself, displaying a self-consciously artistic ability involved in playing the role of a character. In other words, at this moment, Antigone is no longer immediately Antigone. As we put it, she starts to play Antigone. She starts to construct a role of Antigone. And this, for Hegel, this is how he defines comedy. For him, in comedy, he gives a very strange definition of comedy, which appears counterintuitive, but I think it's wonderfully correct. For Hegel, in a comedy, the gap between the actor, the yes, real person, and the role he acts is displayed on the stage itself. What does Hegel mean by this? Not that you do not act your role but you comment on it, but something different, something that... Uh, uh, let me give you uh, an uh, example. What makes it comical a certain situation, is that you act a certain role, but then, and it's part of your role as an actor, I'm not talking about now as acting, that you include some kind of uh, ironic comments on what on what you are doing, an example. For example, do you remember those, I think this is the famous feature of those uh, I Love Lucy, Lucille Ball series, how... You know, when something ridiculous happens, she looks into the camera and says, You know, yeah, this, you know, that's the moment of reflexivity. But this is not the real Lucille Ball. This is the comical reflexivity, like directly addressing the public, what's happening here, and so on. And the idea is that Antigone at that point becomes Lucille Ball, if you want. It's her version version of saying this. So, uh, again, for Hegel, The crucial thing that happened with the passage from comedy, tragedy to comedy, is that you lose this organic immediacy. You no longer are what you are, you play yourself. You play a role of what you are. Now, let's go a step further. Uh, This... uh, 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 Hegel's point is here uh, a wonderful one. It's quite the opposite of the usual Postmodern, the bad postmodernism. The postmodern version of the so called return of the real wisdom. You know, some people think it's somehow, uh, how should I put it, avant garde, radical, when you awaken people from the illusion of reality theatre and when you make them aware that it's only a theatre piece, it's only a film, I don't know, when I was young, for example, it was fashionable to slaughter a chicken on stage, really, the idea was this pseudo-brechtianism, you know, destroy the illusion, make people aware and so on. Now here, if you allow me a brief reference to Lacanian real, this is not Lacanian real, this is exactly, I claim, the escape from the real. For Lacan, real is precisely that what you try to escape from when you escape into reality. You are afraid that the illusion would grab you too deeply, that the real of the illusion would grab you. (coughs) How do I mean this? Uh, For example, where is the real in sexuality? Sorry back to my vulgar nature, I read somewhere that one of the medieval strategies to cure a man from lust for women was to look at the beauty... I will not show it to any of you, not to be... a loser. Let's say this is a woman, okay, so <laughs> To look at a woman who is now young, beautiful, and imagine either how she will be 40 years from now, without teeth, stinking, and so on, whatever. Or, even what even, imagine how she is within her body. you know. it's look a nice skin, but then, you know, all the shit, the intestines, and so on, and so on. So the idea is, confront that real, and it will cure you of desire. But that's not the Lacanian real. The Lacanian real is the, this is wisdom, this is wisdom confront reality and so on. For Lacan, the real is precisely the pure power of this surface which may drag you into it. Real is, for Lacan pure appearance. It's not this idea of we have appearances and we have to penetrate the appearances into the real. Real is not what you get at once you tear away the, the, the screen of appearances. Real is the, how do you call it, spectral power of appearance as such. You know which movie portrays this nicely? I hope you saw it, fuck it, I like it, I admit it. Uh, Jim Carrey, the mask. No. Yeah. The real is not, the re- behind the mask is just his fucking stupid face and his face is... ...stupid enough. Uh, uh, the, you know, the real is... and Here you see why real is for Lacan death drive and compulsion to repeat. Real, you remember when he puts the mask on, he gets caught into this absolute compulsion to act like a cartoon character. This is the spectral and the real. He becomes an entity of pure drive. Uh, he, he even uses one's I meme, mean, the character he plays, a wonderful phrase, where he says, uh, 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 where he says, uh, it's horrible, I'm totally lost, because I can do whatever I want. Like, and So, so uh, what I, uh, and I made, if you don't believe it, to me, here you can encounter, I made a very brutal, I don't want to repeat it, it wasn't nice, experiment with my son here, when he was young. A bit here. I showed him my, I approached him with a mask on. He was a little bit afraid. Then I Put the mask off. So, you say, hey, it's only your stupid fucking father. <laughs> <laughs> then I put the mask on, he was terrified even more again. And he was right. Because
2: he connected
0: the two? No, connected the two in the sense that he knew that there is more reality in the mask. That the, no, the, the, the real is not the reality behind the mask. The real is the spe- spectral excess of the mask itself, yes? So what? If we come from, for instance, the Aristotle and Bertolt Brecht notion of theater, in Lacanian terms, the real is the Aristotle catharsis. I mean- oh, you got me here. Here I, okay, there are limits to my bluffing. I'm tempted to say I don't know. I don't know enough to answer you properly because I maybe should have said this, but I am much spontaneously I'm on the side of Brecht here. Yeah. <coughs> the way I would have saved Brecht would have been to claim that this reading of Brecht, this, uh, uh, this uh, so-called extraneation alien, yeah. I prefer not to say alienation because for Brecht it's the opposite like it's not alienation in this Marxist sense. it's just this denaturalization, no? I think it's not Brecht's deepest message is not be aware, although Brecht sometimes talks about this be aware that it's only an illusion uh, reality behind, no uh, Brecht was fully aware of this logic of the mass which is why, for example, my favorite Brecht, of course, the most challenged one is that famous, uh, the mass name, the measure taken where a couple of comra- comrades have to sacrifice one of their it was usually uh, read as a justification of Stalinist purges, which is totally not true. That play precisely was never performed in Soviet Union. Uh, and, they, they, and you have this wonderful notion also of a forced choice. Then the colleagues tell the young revolutionary, uh, "Be uh, uh, tell him, there is a custom now, we have to kill you. Now we will ask you, do you want? Do you accept to be killed? But whatever you say, we will kill you, or something like, like giving you a choice. But but uh, what is so crucial there? If you read the play, is that what was the mistake of the young comrade? That when he saw suffering, he tear off the mask. The mask, he. The central scene of the play is when he and says, "But people, I'm here to help you," and so on and so on. That was the betrayal. That was the betrayal, which is why, again, and then you have all this Brecht's extreme, almost comic, revolutionary masochism, where after killing him, I love this, the chorus of these comrades sings a song where they say, oh, if I were to be the last piece of sheet of dirt which has to be cleansed so that the room is clean at the end, and so on and so on. But again, what i think is this is why also Brecht was against psychology. He was al- always for a uh, form, you know. Uh, Brecht also played this game of, and this is what I like in Brecht. This, his as extraneation I think it's not so much reality. It's actors commenting on their role, but not from the standpoint of as a real person, but from much more abstract theoretical point, like a life, in, I like in Brecht this totally unrealist way where, you know, an actor comes on stage, addresses the public and says, I am a journalist who is paid by imperialists to spread reactionary propaganda. Now I will approach a worker and I will try to corrupt him and so on and so on. This kind of a fake transpires which, again, I don't think it's, uh, it's reality. I mean, Brecht was Deeply uh, fascinated by the real in the mask, you know, that above his uh, uh, table he had the Japanese mask of some evil spirit, this kind of a distorted face, and he wrote a wonderful poem, terrifying maybe, claiming that this mask is there to remind him how difficult it is to be truly evil. That any idiot can be good, you just help people, blah, blah, blah. But, sorry. Oh, no. Do you
2: want
1: something? Yes. Sir. Okay. You mentioned, backtracking, to it. you mentioned Lacan and the spectral stage of the mirror stage, which he, the synonym for that is the real stage. Uh, no, no, no. Ah, that's a good point. But no, no, no. I just wanted to make one point about that. And that is that, actually, in physics, it's true. There are only surfaces. Um, Richard yeah. Feynman, Nobel Prize for Electrodynamics. Yeah. He used to bring a brick into his students and he'd say, okay, these are the." the surfaces of the brick, show me inside the brick. And then he'd smash it with a hammer and he'd say, okay, what's inside the brick? Mm-hmm. And then now we had two more surfaces. So they'd say, well, we don't know. Then they would smash it again and say, okay, now we have 100 surfaces. And then maybe nothing but white rubble. And they'd say, okay, now we have millions of surfaces. There's nothing but surface in this brick. There's nothing in it. So the whole idea that the surface is not real and that we have to go inside yeah, yeah. and find it is actually physically
0: not true. So yeah, physically, but what I would have said is two things. What I already said is that, nonetheless, isn't it that in a way, the moment you are at the level of life, it is true? You know what I mean? Like, it's counterintuitive to say, I will, again have to be tasteless, okay, I'll be tasteless against myself, that, okay, this is surface, but then you cut in and it's another surface. It's not simply another surface. There is there is, the skin is effectively a surface, in some sense. You cannot say you know that when you... Which is why my ultimate dream that I like is this idea to treat skin as another dress. For example, I am still shocked, I remember when I was a young boy, I remember a wonderful cartoon, a little bit anti-feminist, where a woman, after a party, washes herself, and goes to the toilet and puts with the cream and soap off first all the maquillage, lips, and then she goes on washing her face and puts off the eyes, the nose, and so on. So after (laughs) finishing the washing, that kind of a. you know what? I, uh, again, I think that here, but I go a step further. I agree that the notion of death is purely a, uh, how should I put it, uh, There are only surfaces, but there is an irreducible depth effect. And this is what Lacan's point if you must know it. That wonderful old story that Lacan uses again and again when Lacan tries to explain why only few why what is the difference between humans and animals. What humans maybe it's wrong. I spoke with some biologists, maybe study animal behavior, they were ambiguous. Some of them, okay, it doesn't matter, it's just the logic. You know that famous, sorry if I repeat myself, you must know it, example that Lacone refers, returns to again and again, about the legendary ancient myth of a competition, Xelxus Parasius, between the two painters, ancient. And they compete who will do a better painting. First one of them, I always forget which one paints, paints a painting of grapes, it's so realistic that when the birds see it, they hit it to eat the grapes. Then the other one invites him to his room and the painter sees a curtain and asks him, okay, show me what is behind the curtain, what did you paint? And he said, nothing, I just painted the curtain. No, And he wins. That is to say that, that the true illusion is not what is behind the curtain the true illusion is to organize the surface in such a way that it generates the trompe sorry trompe yeah but in this precise sense that you and uh, lacan's idea is this is femininity as masquerade it's not nothing behind the curtain the illusion is the very illusion of death and uh, then we can. This is how then Lacan connects this kind of cheating with the idea that animals can be cheated in a simple, direct way of you pretend that you are A, but you are in reality B. Only humans can cheat, according to Lacan. I know it's, not know if it's true uh, in a reflexive way that you cheat in such a way that you say A, because you you count on the fact that the other will think that this is only a mask for B, but you cheat by telling the truth, that only humans can cheat by telling the truth. Like, uh, let's say, another sadistic example, sorry, I love you all, but let's say, <laughs> this will be really evil, let's say, But I will meet you, this is just my evil mind. You know what Aristotle said, my God, there are, Plato, there are only two kinds of persons, those who have evil dreams and those who do evil things in reality, No, I mean, Let's say, let's say, I, I know that you know, that you suspect me that I want to avoid you, talking with you, your boring questions after the class, no? Let us say that I know that you know. So let us say you encounter me on the street, and I, te- you ask me, where will you be in the evening? Up here or down in the lobby? Now, I tell you, I will be down in the lobby. My idea is that because you suspect me, you will come here. He was lying, no? But I will count on this and I will really stay in the lobby, no? You know that? To lie, to lie, to lie, to lie in the guise of truth. Or, how should put it, to fame, to feign as Lacombe puts it. To play, to play. That's for Lacombe the truly symbolic trick. And so, uh, sorry, immediately. Uh, 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 back, to, uh, back to this point, so for Lacombe, this is, this is how she put it. This is the symbolic, symbolic cheating as such and Sorry, you want to? Well,
2: there's a famous Jewish joke about the two businessmen from
0: Minsk and some other. Oh, that's Lacan's big example, yes? sir. Where are you going to? They always lie because they're going to each other. I'm going to Minsk. And then finally, one day, the person says the truth. I'm going to Minsk. And the
2: other says, You lie. You really are going to Minsk. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, The Freudian (laughs) version is. But you know who has the best example of this? I eternally quote it. I'm sorry if I repeat myself. It is the classical one. Marx Brothers. You know, that one. This guy. Talks as an idiot, acts as an idiot. We shouldn't deceive you, this guy is an idiot. I mean, uh, so in this sense, Hegel uses exactly the same metaphor, where he says that uh, uh, behind the veil of appearance is nothing, there is only what we put behind, or, uh, or to put it in another way, for Hegel, that is the... Appearance of death, in the sense of Kashiaputi, uh, uh, death is a matter of appearance. In the sense of, there is nothing really behind, but you can organize appearances in such a way that the appearance will be generated that there is something behind the appearance, how put it? That all there is are appearances. All there is, are inconsistencies. So, what does this mean? Now, just to conclude, then you get your fucking break. Yes? I have a question
1: concerning the real. Yeah. In the, I'm thinking the silence of the lambs Yeah. But the skin is, is all the time. Ah, yeah, because that's... Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I'm trying to see how do you... where do you think that the power of the real gets its strength? Yes. From, from where does the real get its own strength. Like where does the mask become, you
0: know, a, a framework thing? And how it is if, if you it's a, yeah. you see your question. It's a good question. Maybe I, again I don't like to bluff more than necessary. I don't think I have a proper answer now. What I would have said it's uh, what I would have said is that uh, uh, the point is, yes, I agree with you, and this is linked to the remark you made before, no? Uh, Lacan started with this depreciation of appearance as imaginary and so on and so on. I think it's crucial in how only in later Lacan, starting from the seminar 11, the the real is no longer this hard real, this pseudo Nietzschean real, you know, this idea of real is too traumatic, too painful, so we need screens we need masks to know that that uh, the real is this spectral force of appearance as such now uh, my answer would have been uh, it's a very abstract one I know it will not convince you but all can all I can do now is just to give you a general direction my answer would have been uh, the way Lacan Street fantasy that is to say how does the mask relate to to its location? If a mask masks some symbolic or whatever other content, it's still imaginary. If the mask is a mask of nothing, it's real. You know which, uh, I'll give you a simple example, but maybe it will work, which I often use to show this power of, real as death drive and so on and so on that's real you remember uh, did you see david lynch mulholland drive mm-hmm. you remember that nice scene when they're in some city dress or whatever club where an actress is singer is singing on stage she collapses the singing goes on this is the moment of the real work, as it were It's almost like, you know, Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland, when the partial object, the full, the smile, survives, insists. So here, uh, uh, there is even a better scene that you find along the same lines. I really love it, it's maybe the best, in that underestimated masterpiece by Sergio Leone, his last film, Once Upon a Time in America. You remember, at the beginning, the phone is ringing endlessly, and then you get a whole flashback, three minutes, Then, the guy hand picks up the phone, but the ringing goes on. Now, of course, this is not a magic movie. That is to say, both in Lynch and here in Sergio Leone, you immediately afterwards get a rational explanation. In Sergio Leone, in David Lynch, it's of course that it was a playback. In Sergio Leone, it's simply that the scene we saw, somebody picking up the phone was still within the hallucination, that it wasn't uh, 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 the real phone and so on. But what I'm saying is that this magical moment when some appearance haunts you, but appearance beneath which there is nothing. I think this is maybe the most horrible experience. The experience when appearance is deprived of its substance. This is death threat. Let me give you another example to make it clear. Are you just scratching or you have a question? Okay, then I just finish, then sorry. Uh, 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 you know usually we say images are just appearances and there is a substance because this is how for example Schopenhauer interpreted the power of music that why is music more forceful than other arts he idea was other arts works works like poetry painting works through representations images but music in its rhythm, directly renders what Schopenhauer calls the will, the life force. And you could get this access in a romantic way. Did you see, for example, the effect is usually kitschy, Chaplin's masterpiece, I think, City Lights. You remember at the end when the girl, before blind girl, recognises him, you have this uccini like kitschy, triumphant music, and then you have the end, But the music goes on. It's as if you have this excess over the images of pure life force. But that would be life drive. But then, the the, the example I usually quote, maybe you know it, it it really dramatized me when I saw it. It really worked. Some Balanchine, you know the ballet guy, states some piece of Webern, Anton Webern. You know what's the problem with Webern? You have his complete works on three CDs now, like, Webern's longest piece is 10 minutes or something like that, no. So, of course, how did Balanchine do it? You have dancers dancing on music. Then, music stops, they continue to dance. I mean, the effect was terrifying. As if the living dead, you know. It's as if precisely, they are, before you took the appearance as representation of the real life force or whatever. But then, this death drive force of appearance is for me precisely when you subtract the life substance, but but the appearance goes on. But let me just conclude, because then after the break we will go into another line. If you allow me, just I just want now to overrun another criticism that you may have, which is that is then my result this kind of extremely boring postmodern stupidity that you know. We just play roles, there are just appearances, there is no authenticity. But before I do this, sorry, you had a question, please.
1: Oh, well, I just wanted to add to the, the not only the sort of this mask with nothing behind it, but the appearance of maybe there being something behind it, a phallus, the mm-hmm. sort of, um, like last time when you mentioned the square root of negative one has something to do with mm-hmm. the real, it also, it's also a kind of, you know, calls the phallus. So in terms yeah. of like where it's sort of hauntingness comes from, yeah, there's the hauntingness of mm-hmm. the mask with nothing behind it, but even in things like the mask, the mask that it like twists and kind of like distorts mm-hmm. his face, that weird distortion that, holy shit, there is something behind yeah. it, and there shouldn't be. That's also the power and the fear. Yeah,
0: no, 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 I agree with you. Yes, this, I mean, one should, don't have time now to go this in detail. Just again, I want to make that point clearly. Why that? I think, uh, maybe you know it, but I cannot, Repeating it, a wonderful movie example of how we can, nonetheless, gain authenticity. But the notion of authenticity that emerges here is not this actor-studio authenticity. You know, like uh, this is why I hate Marlon Brando and those guys. Like as if you know, tear down the masks, act out your true impulses. But what if we? define authenticity as a kind of a tragic full identification with the mask itself. I'm talking here, maybe you know it, about a really nice film by Roberto Rossellini. Maybe you know it. I think it's available now, but difficult to get. uh, From 1959, General della Rovere. It's a story about, it takes place in 43 in the north, occupied Italy, about a small time crook who, who is physically very similar to a big resistance leader. So the Germans had that leader arrested, but he died in prison. So the Germans made a the plan. They arrest this small crook and offer him a deal. The resistance, that's crucial to know, doesn't yet know that, that General Deva Rovere, the big hero, is dead. So they tell him, we will dress you like General Della Rovere, and we will put you in prison, we will put you into prison to mingle with other prisoners as General Della Rovere, because they will think you are the big resistance hero, they will confide you about, you know, resistance activity, so you will tell us what you learned, then you can go to Switzerland with money or whatever. The guy accepted, but then... Identifies with the role. He plays the role to the end. He is shot as General de Rovere and so on. That's for me a very nice example of the authenticity of the mask itself. You play it to the end. I, I prefer much this much more as a model of authenticity, the full identification with the mask, than this idea of tearing down the mask. I already, as I mentioned to you, the first or the second day, I think, this idea of tearing down the mask is always the worst of ideology, you know? This cheap wisdom of, yeah, we are not only our ideological roles, we are humans, and so on, yes? There's another great example from uh, Jorge Luis Borges, and his. Which uh,
2: one? Be the, here, the I will plug here, I The movie version is called Spider Stratagem by Bertolucci, ah, and the yes. short story is called Theme of the Traitor and Hero. And the, the short story is set in Ireland, in which this son comes back to town, where his father is a mythical hero. Yeah. And then he discovers, in fact, that his father was not a hero, mm. but he betrayed the cause, and the partisans, or, or, or yeah. the, 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 the insurrectionists, uh, took him as a, tra- as a traitor and shot him, but, but they organized it to look like he was acting for the cause. So the uh-huh. traitor becomes a hero.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. But, and he also assumes it. Yeah 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 yeah. And in the, uh-huh. in the Italian version, in the, movie, the young man visits the hometown where I set it fascist, didn't, like a certain fascist really like Yeah 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 yeah. You get the idea, and then he discovers that everybody is in on the play. Uh-huh. He's the only one that doesn't know. Oh my God! All all I, I, have thanks have thank you very much. Uh, give me to your name so that I can put. You know how we we do it. I love this absolute hypocrisy. That uh, when. I will be honest, I will put a footnote, but you know, a small footnote at the end of the book, I owe this idea to you. You know how you can play even a nastier game? Uh, the, so that you, uh, you say, after writing this book I discovered that a good friend of mine had a similar idea and so on. You <laughs> have all these strategies of cheating and so on. You know when I was the nastiest but she was mad at me? With John Kopczak. I took an idea from her, so in the first version I put a footnote, you know you have this phrase, typical, where you say I borrowed this idea from blah blah, but of course it's his idea, but all, if there are any mistakes, misdevelopments, they are my fault. I just turned it around. I said I took this idea from John Kobschek, but I developed it, so it's mine. But if anything is wrong, then fuck it. It's her idea. <laughs> so, no. Unfortunately, she disappointed me. She had some problems. <laughs> she, she didn't. She wanted to be celebrated. Okay, but uh, uh, you know what? Uh, there are uh, uh, men, uh, yes. Uh, speaking Bertolucci, I totally agree with you. I think the early Bertolucci's are his true masterpieces. This one, and then of course, Primo della Rivoluzione before the revolution, and so on. He was. I think his uh, 19th uh, this uh, 20th century Novacento is so-so after that uh, starting with that the Claybrook, La Luna incest story it goes down then movies like The Little Buddha their stuff for Gulag that would be to be okay let's do it now and then we go on you want to skip Okay, now, uh, okay, we will not be able to go through the, the whole entire line, but uh, I will try to give you an idea of what Hegel calls reflexivity, how this function in contrast, what I announced already at the beginning, in contrast to what is usually referred to as uh, 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 this uh, post-Hegelian anti-philosophy, this idea that we should break out of the closed circle of philosophical idealist representation into some kind of real-life foundations. My thesis will be in... a. I will take as my example uh, a short story by Italo Calvino, which I want to give a twist to it, a kind of a Stalinist twist, making it Hegelian. It's just to give you first an idea of this reflexivity between inside and outside. The story is told, maybe it's one of these well-known volumes, A King Listens. It focuses on the sense of hearing. In an anonymous kingdom, the royal palace becomes a giant ear and the king obsessed and paralyzed by fears of rebellion, tries to hear every fragile sound that reverberates in his palace. Footsteps of the servants, whispers, conversations, fanfare trumpets at the raising of the flag, ceremonies, sounds of the city at the outskirts of the palace, riots, rumble of the rifles and so on and so on. The king cannot see the source of all these sounds but is obsessed by interpreting their meaning and the destiny they are predicting. This interpretive paranoia only seems to... So, again, that's how the king lives. It's kind of, you know, sounds everywhere, my God, totally paranoid, what do they mean and so on and so on. Is it a plot against me or whatever? Interpreting all of this. Then something happens which puts a stop to this interpretive paranoia and completely enchants the king. Through the window, the wind brings in a, a singing voice of a woman, a voice of pure beauty, unique, irreplaceable. For the king, it is the sound of freedom. He steps out of the palace into the open space and mingles there with the crowd. Now, again, the first thing you should bear in mind here is that this king is not the traditional monarch, but the modern totalitarian A traditional king doesn't care about his environment. He arrogantly ignores it. He leaves the worry to prevent plots to his ministers. It is the modern leader who is obsessed by plots. To rule is to interpret is a perfect formula for Stalinism, which was the system of endless paranoia hermeneutics. So, when the king is seduced by the pure feminine voice of immediate life pleasure, This is obviously, although unfortunately not for Calvino himself, a fantasy. Precisely the fantasy of breaking out of the closed circle of representations, of rejoining the pure outside of the innocent presence of the feminine voice, which is a kind of excess, in excess of the self-mirroring prison house of representations. This voice needs no interpretation it only gives body to the voice which enjoys, as it were, its own exercise. But this is, again, if I got it correctly, how Calvino himself proposes the story. It's another variation of this old Susan Zontag motive of against interpretation. That this vicious circle of interpretation is a kind of a closure, prison of language, of our existence at that the art of life is to break out of this into the fresh air of immediate presence but i think that uh, i will simply try now to of course i disagree with this i don't i think this is a metaphysical need so how should we rewrite the story, if you know my evil Stalinist mind, you will already have guessed it, how should we rewrite the story to make it the way I want to have it? (laughs) What is missing here is the way this innocent externality of the voice is itself already, how shall I put it, marked, inscribed into the mirror of interpretive representation. What we should do is this, I think. This is how I would have added another, just one paragraph to the story. When the king exits the palace following the voice, he is immediately arrested. The feminine voice was an instrument of the plotters to lure him out of the safety of the guarded palace, and so on and so on. I would like to precisely, you know, this point of externality he clings to, he falls into the trap, that's the true plot. The true plot is not all the rumors and so on. The true intelligent plot is precisely to give you a way out. Which brings us, if I may indulge in another ideological reflection. Maybe you know this line, but I like it. Nonetheless, which brings us to how we should interpret this uh, critique of ideology, this, how should I call it, reference to the obscenity of the sounds themselves, the obscene materiality of language, voice of symbolic texture. Uh, maybe you know the story, but I'd I like to repeat it. Something happened, Some, you know, I come from Slovenia, which is south of Austria. In south of Austria, bordering Slovenia, there is a province called Carinthia. They had the glorious leader, <laughs> Uh, 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 Jörg Haider, you know, the well-known proto-fascist populist. His card, which he played again and again in politics, was that, which is totally ridiculous, that we Slovenes pose a threat to Carinthia that we want to occupy it. So, his big political motto was can bleibt Deutsch. Carinthia will or should remain German. How did some friends of mine i met make them later uh, leftists counter-attack not as you would have expected with a complex interpretation